I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with uh, Tim Sanders, and we're here in, in Las Vegas, of all places. But this is where you live, right, Tim? This is where I lay. <laughs> Fortunately, not on the Strip. You've got a, you've got, you've carved out a quiet, tranquil spot in this. Uh, we are, crazy we are city. the West Side. We are the West Side. We love it. It's a great city. One of the best cities to live in in North America. You know, Tim, I've been a big fan of your books and your ideas for some time. And you know, what I was amazed when we started talking was that you've really been on the kind of the the cusp of, of so many of these revolutions for some time. I'm going all the way back to, to cell phones, right? I'm like the Forrest Gump of technology. You know, <laughs> you, you show me like a, an inflection point of history and it's like I, I'm there with big shoes. You know what I mean? So yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to be on the ground floor of the quality movement when it came to the United States in the 1980s, the, the launch of cellular phones later that decade, the birth of the uh, internet with audio video streaming and, and such. So it's been very exciting. And and uh, if nothing else, you were the sales guy for Mark Cuban. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how did, how did you sort of make that transition um, from the corporate sector into becoming essentially a thought leader around sales and relationships? I didn't choose it. It chose me. And I tell that to people all the time. I mean, I was working at broadcast.com when a literary agent um, approached me and said that she thought I had a perspective that was worth writing a book around and we incubated that idea for a few years um, and at the same time parallel to all of that Mark Cuban IPOs this broadcast.com thing and it's the biggest IPO in history and then he sells the company to Yahoo for whatever amount of dollars and I transfer to California and within two years become the company's chief solutions officer. <laughs> so this happens at the same time. So yeah. I, I publish a book while I'm a standing executive at Yahoo. We take some time off work to do a little national book tour and it makes the list 11 months later. And my, I, I go to work one day and um, they've run a cover story on Fast Company about my book and I'm holding a heart and the whole thing. And I go to work, no joke, there's 20 voicemail messages on my machine from talent agents and bureau leaders saying, we've got this client, Hewlett Packard, and they want you to come to France and give this talk at their international <laughs> customer summit. And that's how it started. And I went to my boss at the time, and I had a list of all these speaking offers. And I said, what do I do? And they said, well, just take vacation days and be a brand ambassador. And I started, and that's where it all began. I, I sometimes think I feel sorry for the people that weren't around with the first internet boom because they think you know Uber and Airbnb are big, but... Back in the in the late nineties and early two thousands, it was in, it was insanity. Um, they were breaking new ground. I yeah. mean, it was it was you just have to imagine this. The it was like Moore's law times a thousand. Hmm. From a business development standpoint, the value that was being created from nineteen ninety four to say March of two thousand, we've never seen that again. Uh, hmm. Forget social media, Bitcoin, you know, whatever you want to speak to, we've never seen that much value. Uh, created in such a short period of time in history. Hmm. Your your new book that's coming out, it's called, going to be about, uh, uh, I guess, reimagining the sales process. But but it's more than that, isn't it? It is. The, the, it's my fifth book. It's titled uh, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Will Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenge. 
The premise of the book is that in business-to-business sales, a quality sale is really difficult. Right. Uh, the rise of multiple decision makers, procurement groups, and buying committees is astounding. So it's like a labyrinth for anyone it's, to have to navigate. The, the analogy I use is that when I started out in sales in the 1970s, I sold radio ads in Portales, <laughs> New Mexico. I had a clip-on tie and a short sleeve, white shirt. I went door-to-door, and I pitched mostly mom-and-pop businesses on buying radio right. in our little FM station. And This wasn't a product that sold itself, was Direct it? sale. Handshake deal. It was the easiest sale in the world. The analogy I use is it was like playing the video game of the time, Pong. It's very (laughs) simple. Hand-eye coordination, right? But today, with multiple decision makers, layers and layers of complexity on the products and services we sell, and cloud-based competitors, it's like playing Halo these days. Mm. The game of sales has become increasingly complex. And the premise of deal storming is that a quality sale is a thousand problems solved. And the only competitive advantage left is rapid problem solving, Uh, whether it's our problems or the customer's dysfunction that we have to solve to get from um, the contact to the contract. And this is not just looking for the right angle to sell somebody, is it? It, 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 You're actually constructing the value on the fly. You know, what you're doing is you're creating a team. And the analogy I use is that we need to create webs, not silos. So when I think about teams, I've done a lot of research on successful collaboration, uh, creative innovation projects. You have to invite everyone who has a stake in the outcome or expertise about the problem. And you have to think beyond the borders of the normal organizational structure. So in the world of sales, you know, I've interviewed so many leaders and they say, well, we're, we're very teamwork oriented. And then I say, well, help me, help me understand the, the value chain of your team. And they basically describe this very tall, um, line-oriented team. They're not doing teamwork. They're doing line work. This is no different than making a car in Henry Ford's factory. You know what I mean? It's line work. A person passes it to the next person. Teamwork is when everybody's involved with a shared vision and willing to look out for the person next to them Hmm. and sacrifice himself if they have to. Um, True teamwork, we've learned, involves people from finance and operations and engineering and marketing and there's an alignment in the most successful selling organizations in the world that's cross-departmental where this shared vision usually beating the competition gets everyone in a room to share what they actually know because the secret to collaboration is for everyone in the room to share what they know and express what they think will work in a given situation. You need more than executive platitudes to make this happen though. I mean, what, what is the what is sort of the optimal environment you need to have for this to kind of take root? So in my mind, an opportunity for collaboration starts around a sales challenge. It could be um, winning a big account. Hmm. It could be about breaking into a new market that could change the future of the company. I write a lot about that. Or it could be about saving your biggest relationship. And I believe it starts with that account executive and her manager. That's the catalyst. That's the catalyst. So that account executive has to figure out how to translate uh, everything to get everyone in the room, those that are not in sales, to make the transition from me to we. So there's this shared vision in the room. And the account executive has to protect the misfits and the introverts. They have to drive people um, to making decisions and not achieving consensus. But the most important thing I learned from the research is to quote Louis Pasteur, chance favors the prepared mind. Hmm. 
brainstorming doesn't work because we throw people into a room fully unprepared. We spend too much time briefing them and not enough time letting them express their ideas and vet their assumptions. The secret I learned in the research for this book, a hundred case studies, is that a deal brief that's given to everyone that's going to come to a meeting three days before, hopefully over a weekend, is the secret to success. When you put together the problem, the influence map, the history of the opportunity and the strength, weakness, opportunity, threat of the target, and you put that into a three to four page brief, you give it to a wide, diverse group of thinkers and you bring them into the room, they are bursting with vetted ideas and you can enter the debate cycle within 15 minutes. And that's where you really hatch constructive plans. Is this something that really has to be done in a room with a whiteboard and a pot of coffee or can you can you use enterprise social networks or other tools to scale this up beyond just a physical environment? Very good question. So, so the answer is it depends on the organization and its culture. Right. In, in certain situations, the umbrella of grace that is extended that causes everyone to reveal the not so common information that really leads to creative solutions um, has to happen in the room because what you have to do is you have to dissolve those boundaries. Or as one author that I researched writes, uh, Leah Thompson in Creative Conspiracy, you got to solve the fault lines. So sometimes you have to do that face to face because there's such a high telepresence of communication okay. when we're face to face. However, that being said, um, I've seen a lot of shared environments that were purely digital. And the analogy I'd use for those organizations, say like a Google and advertising sale or LinkedIn and HR solutions, is it, it, it's called the accordion. So think of the accordion as like the account executive and a small team of cross-departmental players get together and they identify and agree on the problem and they pontificate on potential next steps and then they go out and have all their separate meetings with their tribes and their stakeholders to figure out what they can do, what they can get commitment to, and that's a bigger set of meetings. And then they collapse back into that small deal strumming meeting again to talk about what's happened. The account executive kind of keeps that going. So the accordion goes in and out and out over time. And what kind of pulls them along is the shared document features, whether it's Salesforce, whether it's Google Drive, whatever it is. So that shared workspace is critical to that accordion keeping the group together right. through multiple iterations and little tribe holder meetings, et cetera. It seems that these companies that are successful, that build a, a culture that is collaborative to solve problems, it really depends on the strength of the networks that they have internally. Uh, That's absolutely true, Mike. It, it is. There was a study in 2014 by Miller Hyman Institute, who does a lot of research on sales performance, and they identified this type of company they call world-class organization. Right. World-class organization sells 20% more than their competitors and has better reputation for delivery. It's the place you want to be in any business, right? They said that they looked at everything attribute-wise that they could all share in common to find the one that could be modeled. And they said the only thing they could find in common with all these world-class organizations is the habit of conscious collaboration across department in pursuit of large deals. Um, because the large deals are the war stories around the campfire that create that corporate culture, hmm. like the way thing, we do things. They, they here, become right? a shared experience. They become the shared experience, the stories, the heroes, et cetera, the multi-million dollar deal that saved the company. And so what happens is the, the world-class organization uses a sales challenge as a platform, a burning platform, if you will, to create underground tunnels between silos that can't be solved. Hmm. 
And the world-class organization would believe that you can't solve silos as long as you have budgets and limited resources. They will always be built to harden the world from the outside, you know, that department world. But when you create these collaboration projects against a sales challenge, you create these tunnels, these high-level communication experiences between groups that allow them to function very, very well, despite the fact that they live in silos for that period it, it, of time. It's almost like a and new, it changes the culture of the company. It's like a neural link almost, like a muscle, a kind of form of muscle memory. It is. And the reason why is because, getting back to one of my earlier points, this account executive is really good at using the right lever to create a shared vision, right? So shared vision is not the revenue. Believe it or not, you know, engineering and operations and everybody outside of finance and sales, they don't care about the money that much, no. right? And in the world we live in with stock markets, you don't even know that money leads to stock performance. But I hate our rival, that organization where the, the pain of losing is greater than the joy of winning. Um, that works every single time. <laughs> and so the act of bringing a team together to solve a sales challenge to kick a rival's ass. I it's used to it's use, tribal, right? <laughs> it, but what it does culturally is it puts competition on the outside. Right. Right? So that's, that's part of that culture building process. So what I loved about the Miller-Hyman research, and I write about it in the new book, is it redefines what it means to be a sales-driven organization, right? Mm -hmm. We always thought a sales-driven organization was an organization where sales had to bring the business in or the lights don't stay on, but that's not it at all. Sales, through its collaboration, through its boundary-busting, problem-solving mentality, creates a truly innovative organization, right? Because creativity, which I spent a lot of time researching, creativity is one's ability to produce surprising yet truly appropriate solutions to the situation. And that comes from culture, and that culture comes from shared experiences. And besides save the company product or marketing, which is very rare, very rare, these sales challenges present the platform for organizations to reinvent themselves. What I think is intriguing about this is that companies often think about these things in isolation, uh, so almost like in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So they say to themselves, we want to be more innovative, mm -hmm. we want to be more collaborative, we want to be more creative. But they kind of tell people to kind of just kind of spend part of their day doing that. There's right. no focus around it. Right. There's a process. I mean, one of the common, there's two common ideas that came out of all my research. I interviewed 200 different executives across all of the different verticals and, and, and not just salespeople, CEOs, CMOs, uh, chief product officers. Two ideas. Idea number one, without a process, you get a mess. You don't prescribe collaboration. You adopt a structure for it. You create escalation points, and you create a process around it to structure it so that the time is spent wisely, execution is driven on a test and scale basis. So when you have that process, the thing works great. Hmm. You don't have the process, you have the goat rodeo I call you know, <laughs> brainstorming. The second key idea I got out of all my interviews is that the winning culture has the following mantra, ideas can come from anywhere. When leadership adopts this mantra, ideas can come from everywhere, you shatter one of the most important myths we need to shatter about creativity, and that's the myth of the expert. Hmm. This is, you and I know there's no such thing as an well, expert. There's just experienced people that have opinions. But, but we also kind of buy into that heroic archetype of the the kind of the lone genius on a mountaintop. Uh, Another myth of creativity, right? right. Thomas and, Edison stood for 12 people, <laughs> right? There is no lone genius. Uh, Whitney didn't invent the cotton gin. Well, why, um, he, why, 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 do, why do we, uh, you know, why do we lust after that? I interviewed a creativity uh, expert named David Berkus. He wrote a wonderful book called The, the Myths of Creativity. Um, and he said that 
it goes all the way back to mythology, right? It's like it's a romantic notion that the lone inventor. Journey. Yeah, it's the hero's journey. So, so we're very resistant when people like me or him or, or the other creativity experts, when they come out and say there is no lone inventor, it's all collaboration. It's all people building on other people's ideas. Or as Ed Catmull from Pixar says, most ideas are like really ugly babies, you know, that are kind of brought to life and made pretty, you know, by a town or a committee. Uh, but Burke has told me, he said, we fight, we fight for this. We fight for the idea that Steve Jobs invented everything, the iMac, the iPhone, the iPad, it was Steve, when you know it wasn't. It's Johnny Ive in the studio and it filled these cascades down, you got Tony Fidel, I mean, you, you know it's a huge team, but we have that romantic notion, we fight for it, that's the problem with myths of creativity. Mm -hmm. If we believe there's one big idea that saves the company, if we believe there's one lone genius that saves the company, we never collaborate, that's the risk, right? When we break these myths down, we realize, no, I've got to build a web around a, that's de democratic, I've got to extend the umbrella of grace, I've got to implement uh, a meritocracy for these meetings where ideas can come from anywhere. Um, that, that's the only way that any company truly solves any problem. One of the other big problems uh, that companies are trying to get their minds around beyond obviously increasing sales is experiences. And uh, you know, in, in my work I see this as particularly important because we're now thinking about digital transformation in the context of how it improves the customer experience for mm -hmm. a new generation of customer. Mm -hmm. uh, you've done a lot of thinking and work around emotional talent. How does that, how does that tap into this idea of experience? So, so let's let's tie into why emotional talent so important. So, um, uh, Donald Broadbent, he was a, a UK professor in the fifties. He posited a theory that he spent a lot of time researching. It's called Broadbent's filter, right? Because mm. they always name the concept after themselves. He believed that the human brain would develop these these filters that would keep information from penetrating and demanding attention and that the more demands on our attention that are made the denser the filter becomes and that there be a point where the human being is accosted 20 times a day with a request for our attention he predicted it would be somewhere in the 60s or 70s and of course Seth Godin would tell you it's 500 times a day and it's escalating <laughs> so the filter is so dense it's a miracle anything gets through mm. um, but Robin suggested that there was a velvet rope and when he wrote this it inspired a young man named Daniel Goldman and um, Broadbent explained this amygdala, this emotional seat of the brain that was 35 times more powerful than the logical brain, that is the hijack. It is the velvet rope. It is the secret, like before the book The Secret came out, to being successful with human beings. Hmm. And so to kind of cut to the chase, when you take a look at companies that have figured out customer experience design, whether it's Virgin Airlines, whether it's Ritz-Carlton, whether it's Starbucks, what they've done is they've taken a design viewpoint about how the customer's journey works from an emotional experience. They went beyond the Microsoft functionality and they entered the, the Apple surprise and delight world. So I've done a lot of work that basically says leaders need to think like designers, especially when it comes to their employees' emotional experience, which drives either their cortisol or DHEA production which leads to their problem-solving ability, which leads to their ability to get along with each other, which leads to engagement and entrepreneurship and all those things we push for. We've got to design an emotional experience that's so positive when the employee comes to work every day, somehow there is a song in their heart and not a pit in their stomach. In the last two years, uh, I've also developed a body of research that suggests this is infinitely even more important in terms of how companies treat 
their supply partners and vendors. If right. you think like a designer and you say, I am the best client, tough but fair, but I am the best client from an emotional standpoint, um, you get the A-team and your service levels are dramatically higher. Uh, the research I've seen says it's 300% more determinative of performance of your service providers than your ability to negotiate strong contracts with them. So, so, so it's about thinking like a designer, design being defined as the constant act of problem solving. And what kind of resolution do they have to do this? Uh, I mean, CEOs can sort of understand they can go away on a weekend retreat and come up with a bold purpose for the business. But how do you sort of go down to the, to the level of day-to-day managing the emotional levels? It's a brilliant question. So getting back to customer experience, I'll use an example. So Sharp Healthcare Systems in San Diego um, read a book, the same book I read, Turn of the Century, The Experience Economy by Pine and Gilmore, talked about the idea that, you know, in the future people buy experiences, they don't it buy services. It was a services. great book. Yeah. Great book. Great book. Great guys. Think about it's a great conference. You should go sometime. They'd love you. Um, so Sharp decides they're going to do this. So the CEO comes in, he decides, hey, we want to compete on having the best experience. So he challenges every discipline in the hospital system to segment the experience because the patient doesn't have one experience. They have a bunch of little transactions along a design plot line mm. from discovery to billing that leads to an overall impression. So whether it was the emergency room or whether it was oncology or whether it was prenatal, they all had their little collaborative exercises to redesign their experience. And the winning group, which was based on the KPI of net promoter score, the winning group was the pavilion where they did colonoscopies. These guys <laughs> sat down as a group democratically and they asked everybody, what are all the experiences the patient has around a colonoscopy? Well, you can imagine it's a pretty bad experience. Yeah. From preparation to conclusion, <laughs> it sucks. I mean, quite <laughs> configurative. And, and they realized that in, in, this, in this experiment, the two things they couldn't change was the fleet enema or the actual invasive procedure. They couldn't do anything about those, but they changed everything else. So, Will they give you a hug afterwards? <laughs> get this. You want to go through this? Here's the list. So the night before your colonoscopy, you receive a video they produced that is stars Manny the Roto-Rooter, and it's kind of humorous, but it's kind of serious, and it kind of helps. It calls, it's, it's an orientation video, because they learn surprises, like only positive, when follow a happy birthday, right? So the more you know about what's going to happen when you go in, the less bad it is, right? So the video kind of sets your expectations. Um, um, you're given a wake-up call the next day. It's cheerful. A nice person calls you, wakes you up. You know, times They call you at your home. Mm-hmm. When you show up at Sharp Healthcare Systems, they link the picture in the health insurance records to their appointment so that they recognize you and before you even identify yourself just like starbucks does brilliant hack starbucks didn't give you a number they asked you your name brilliant Mm. they say mike it's nice to see you when you walk into the pavilion they redesigned the walkways because men don't like to see other men in their robes so there's no eye contact of patients they redesigned the robes around the san diego chargers the local football team they got rid of the hole in the back of the robe it's velcro up the side when you come out of the procedure you're served orange juice on stemware the doctor is trained in empathy so when he calls you with the results if they're bad he's very sensitive if they're positive he's almost jolly and it's almost like a southwest airlines flight where they kind of joke around a little (laughs) bit when you land but by taking that colonoscopy experience and breaking it down into every little transaction they did the two things that a designer always does they get rid of the pain points and they find those signature moments that can be staged. Mm. And, and I think that's the secret and that's something I'm super interested in. So, so great leaders today have a designed viewpoint and they understand how to read the emotions of their people 
correctly, and they know how to design for a consistently positive emotional experience, not just for the customer, but for the employees and the vendors they depend on. Which companies have you seen have, have taken that logic and applied it to the employee vendor supplier? SAS experience? Institute. So SAS Institute um, is is considered one of the best companies to work for in the world, no doubt. Fortune has a list they come out with every year, and SAS Institute's been top 10, 20 years. Right. Okay, so they're like, they get it. They get it so much that Larry and Serge from Google went there in Cary, North Carolina in 2000, and they stayed there for a month just bugging this, the founder, Jim Goodnight, a statistician, bugging him about how he did everything at SAS because he'd figured it out. The corporate, he was the first corporate campus. He was the guy that got rid of sick time. So at SAS, they don't have sick days. Huh. You just come in if you feel healthy. If your kid's sick, don't come to work. If you can't do your job, they'll replace you. They, they got rid of it because he said it makes a, it makes a, it, it's almost like the 55 mile hour speed limit. It makes a bunch of cheaters. Um, they bring in fresh flowers every Wednesday. Um, there's on-site food. They've had on-site health care for you and your family from the 31st day since 1989. Um, so do they, they've do they do always this globally? thought of it. Huh? Do they do this yeah. globally? Because yeah. I know there's a trend with a lot of these tech companies. They have these kind of utopian campuses in the United States. But well, Cary, North Carolina is, you know, it is a utopian campus, but when they have expanded, I've, I've had opportunity to speak for them in other countries, such as Brazil, they replicate that campus idea. Right. They want to create that solution, that sticky point that's family-oriented. And by the way, they, they're the first people that adopted the um, a strict 38-hour work week with no evening and weekend email. He was the first guy. The French gets the idea from him. <laughs> Goodnight realized that if you could tell an engineer you'll, you don't have to, to check your email evenings or weekends, and he realized this a decade ago, that it would create a huge advantage for the next generation that wasn't as workaholic as their boomer parents. So SAS Institute, great design for employee experience. Costco, great design for vendor, what they call partner experience. They take, Jim Senegal and his team take just as much time and attention around the Kirkland brand supplier chain that allows them to produce such an outstanding quality product at a fraction of the price of you know most of the leading brands. So he realized that their ability to produce strong store brands and have really good supplier relations came down to their ability to be the retailer of choice. And he was smart because think about his competition like Walmart, who has a reputation for beating the crap out of their suppliers to push the price down. He saw an opportunity to think like a designer. And if you shop Costco versus say Sam's Club or Walmart, it's not even close. We're at a time now where 21st century organizations are going to be under, really under attack from AI, algorithms, automation. Um, really, we're living with more computers. Do you think this is going to present a challenge to the design of these kind of human experiences inside organizations? You know, I think so. And um, I was thinking about that today. I read something about um, Robert Scoble. So Scoble wrote a famous blog called The Scobalizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a chief evangelist now at Rackspace. But yesterday, he was talking about um, how excited he was to see all these independent bookstores dying. He's saying this is a really good thing for society, really good thing. This is the way it should be. And what he, what he said is that if you want to be a successful um, technology-led company in the future, a consumer services company, you have to reward the lazy and stop rewarding the innovators because that's what ruins business. He says, you know, the only people that ever got any value out of going to an independent bookstore from like 2000 to 2015 were the innovators. They figured out how to hack the store and get something out of the whole hassle of driving there and parking and buying real physical books <laughs> and having to carry them around and monkey with them. 
when the rest of the lazy world that carries a Kindle around just does it on two clicks. He says business has to change their philosophy to reward the lazy if they want to stay on the cutting edge of innovation. And that really hit me today. And I said, yeah, that, that's where things are going. That, that's where we are now with machine learning and AI and everything converging. We, we, have to, we have to realize that the lazy will rule the future of consumer services. Tim, it's been a great pleasure hanging out as always. All right. Thanks for being on the show, man. Absolutely. (laughs) Cheers. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.